Hello, I am Jose Garcia Moreno, and I'll be your host for today's episode. The overall purpose of this podcast is to capture people, their complex and rich identities, and show you who they are through their own stories. On this occasion, we interview Fernando Guerra, long-term faculty member and founding director of a significant research institute on the LMU Westchester campus. Fernando experienced Los Angeles as a child, student, professor, and now leader. He humanizes parts of the LMU community so that we can be aware when systemic belief systems led us astray. The realities highlighted in today's episode traverse borders, castes, and belief systems. These realities are still present when the microphone is turned off. Welcome to the show, Fernando. And please tell us about your affiliations with Loyola Marymount University. I'm a professor. I have a joint appointment in political science and Chicano studies when I first started, but now political science has become political science and international relations. And Chicano studies changed its name from Chicano studies to Chicana Chicano studies. And then we changed our name again to Chicana Chicano Latina Latino studies. Um, and I'm also the director of the Center for the Study of Los Angeles, which we typically just call Study LA. Fernando, are you an Angelino? Yeah, born and raised. The only time I didn't live in LA was when I was exiled to the Midwest to get my PhD at the University of Michigan. Okay. Family came from Mexico? Uh-huh. Um, well, see, you know, my, uh, my mother is an immigrant. In her uh, late 20s, early 30s, immigrated from Jalisco. Mm. She grew up in Guadalajara, but was born in a, a small colonial town uh, outside of Guadalajara, Mascota, which I had the pleasure to visit last uh, last summer. It was it, it, it was it was awesome. But my father was born in the United States, and his father was born in the United States. So, um, you know, third generation from that perspective. And what would be my great-grandfather just walked across uh, from northern Mexico when there really was no border. And so I can also say that he's indigenous to the to the space, to the borderlands. Right. So uh, how? Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, what is your perspective? What is your What are your memories of growing up as a... Uh, Mex Mexican American kid here in LA. Oh yeah, I mean, incredibly uh, powerful. But in retrospect, I didn't think of it this way as growing up, but isolating. And that I grew up in a neighborhood that was mostly Latino. It was in transition. It was uh, transitioning from being white to Latino. And so I would say in my elementary school. Uh, it was about, you know, 60% Latino. By the time I went to middle school, it was 75% Latino. And by the time high school, it was, you know, 85% Latino. And so I, I saw that transition and, and, and lived there and had no vision. So, for instance, even though I'm an Angelino, I never heard of or was ever in Westchester until as a senior in high school came to visit Loyola Marymount University. I had never heard of Westchester and, and didn't know about it. And that's how isolating it was. I could also remember being at, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the park, uh, one of the famous, uh, parks in, uh, in, on the East side in 1973 as a, you know, under 10 and seeing, uh, uh the mariachi music start 
and then my dad, you know, getting up to walk over there, and I walk with him, and then seeing this person who was so overwhelming start to speak, and just like royal and majestic, and it was Tom Bradley, and he was running for mayor, and I made the observation to my dad, it's like, he's black, there's no blacks in L.A., and he goes, what do you mean? And he goes, I've, I've, there was one black kid in my entire elementary school. And in my mind, L.A. was all Latino, which is not the case, you know, but my neighborhood was all Latino. And my father was a, um, worked for a, a bank in security. And so all his employees, all, all the people that he worked for at that time were mostly African-Americans. Uh, and the, uh, um, the whole field of security officers uh, not police officers, but people who worked for security for banks, etc., was a heavily unionized African American workforce. You know, and it just shows the difference now that security guards aren't unionized; they don't get paid. But they they were like a powerful union, etc. And and my dad, having heard me said this, you know, uh, two or three weeks later, uh, we went to a uh, barbecue uh, in at South Central LA with one of his uh, African American colleagues, and he took me. To say to experience that part of the city, and he, I think he was a little bit embarrassed that that, that I had pointed that out. And we went to the Watts Towers as well, etc. And he kind of gave me a quick tour of Black LA, which kind of like blew my mind that number one LA was so big and so diverse. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, I, I came, you know, I was born and raised in Mexico City, but uh, came later uh, as an adult to LA, and uh, and it, I think it's it's uh, always surprising. For someone that has not been raised here, how isolated neighborhoods mm-hmm. are, and I guess I'm sure that you have studied that through through the center, how public transportation play the role in isolating mm-hmm. neighborhoods. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, segregation, housing policies, transportation policies, uh, all of that. You know, I mean, even. In my early years here at Loyola Marymount University, you know, our School of Education has a very great relationship with uh, the Lenox school system, which is not far from here. And uh, it, it's uh, it's almost 97% Latino. It's on the west side, but it's right under the uh, uh, flight path of LAX, right? And uh, so we did a study of, the, of that neighborhood. It's kind of like a square mile. And... We asked the question, and I'm trying to remember why we asked the question, but a student was interested in it's like how often they go to the beach. And it was something like 20% of some of the kids had never been to the beach. You can get on a bike. It may take you like an hour or so and get to the beach. Right. But that how it, it was just, it, it was unfathomable to me that that was the case. The barrier that the 405 freeway and that LAX played to that community that it couldn't look west where the beach was that it continued to look uh, uh, south and, and, and east it was just a, a phenomenon that I think reinforces your statement about the infrastructure and how the city developed that leads to some of the isolation I don't know how you see this and uh, the use of uh, how unfriendly LA is for people to walk the city yeah. like they're like a uh, uh, places where the sidewalk is invaded by gardens, etc. There's like absolutely, uh, it's almost like extending the wall mm-hmm. beyond your own property. And it's, uh, uh, it's, it's really interesting. I see a little change in that. I think uh, the development of downtown has led to a little bit of change, but I think the biggest impact is COVID. 
and the fact that we've put so many restaurants outside and that some of them are going to stay or that people are the, that the regulations that the city is thinking about is allowing that and that new things will be built. The other thing that boggles my mind is if you go anywhere in the world that's got a beach and is a beach community, the amount of restaurants, et cetera, that are on the beach, uh, try to have a meal at a restaurant in Los Angeles on the beach. It's like I, I, you can't even think of one, right? But yet you go to Mexico or, or Spain or Italy or Brazil, that, that's the, the, ma- the main thing. One of our greatest resources is the beach, and it's so underutilized for the building of culture and community. So talking about changes, and uh, you are like an extraordinary witness to uh, the changes in the city, uh, what would you say are the main changes that you, that you can uh, – that you envision here happening in this in this city? Obviously, COVID has impacted everything and how we view things. Um, but also, the the city is going through a change, by in a way, by not changing for the first time. And what I mean by that is the history of Los Angeles has been one of every single decade growing, sometimes growing at phenomenal rates of over a hundred percent. I mean, when you think about the the 20s and the millions of people that came here or the 50s, constant growth in Los Angeles and then constant demographic growth with the immigration of uh, Latinos or the movement of um, black Angelinos from the South to uh, South Central, the internment of the Japanese, but then the increasing number of Chinese or Vietnamese and Cambodians and everybody who came here, the immigration has completely changed how we view L.A. and then the white flight that occurred. Um, and that is a very well-known history and trend to every Angelino, every observer of L.A. And basically, it has stopped. And what I mean by stopped is if you examine the 2020 census compared to 2010, L.A. grew the least as a percentage that it's ever grown in this history. So the no growth in the population, right? But almost as important is the makeup of that population is almost exactly the same as it was in 2010, meaning that Latinos were almost 50% and they didn't go over 50%. They're almost 50%. Um, that, uh, and it's because of the lack of immigration. And so for the first time, I could actually say that we have the end of immigration to Los Angeles. That doesn't mean immigrants aren't coming, but they're not the force that they were in terms of numbers of changing the neighborhoods or changing how we view L.A. So immigration as a force of social change in Los Angeles is over. We have the end of white flight. Whites are no longer leaving L.A. As a matter of fact, there are more whites in the 2020 census than in 2010 in Los Angeles. And one can say, you know, whites who were going to leave left you know, and now you have some coming back, a lot of the hipsters moving to downtown, moving to uh, uh, different places. So th- that that has changed. You have a stable African-American community and, and, and continuing to increase and, and diversify Asian-American community. But we've never had this demographic stability, both in terms of number and the, the diversity staying the same. So that creates an opportunity to uh, create challenges as well. Uh, but it creates an opportunity to to basically say, this is who we are. This is what Los Angeles is like, and it's going to be. And so we don't have to take a look at these tremendous changes that we're always trying to catch up. We know now the characteristics of the population. We can plan for them, et cetera. Could you please talk a little bit about, um, because I get asked, as any other Latino, a lot about this. 
oh, you don't look Latino or yeah. a, uh, whatever it is. Uh, could you please talk if you consider that there's like this monolithic perception of what the Latino community oh, sure. it, yeah. is and what how can you define the diversity here in LA? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean th that is that is a, a, a challenge in the in the sense that obviously Los Angeles was founded by a very multicultural set of people. Now, Los Angeles was always here, the land and the people, the, the, the Chumash, and etc. But in terms of European contact, uh, that, that great expedition that uh, left Mexico and came to Los Angeles, the Pobladores, uh, there were uh, white Europeans, there were white who were born in Mexico. There were, uh, um, there were uh, obviously mestizos. There were indigenous from Mexico. But there was also Afro-Hispanics in that original group of families that, that arrived. There were also even Asians because of the history of uh, Acapulco and Manila and that you found some uh, Filipinos who were there. But even there, we didn't know how to label it. They were Filipinos, but in some of the documents, they're noted as Chinos, you know. And, and it's always uh, the, the, the Spanish word using Chino really meaning for Asian. And so that, but then it quickly becomes just a Mexican mestizo. And the history of Latinos in L.A., while it's diverse and you have Chilenos because of the mines and all that, it's always been vastly majority Mexican. And it is the history of Mexicans and Mexico, Mexican immigration, that created the Latino identity of L.A. and created how non-Latinos, non-Mexicans view all Latinos. And so it, it is a Mexican-dominant uh, diaspora, and then others come and plug in, Salvadorians, Nicaraguans, and they pick up a lot of the culture, not only of Mexico, but of Mexican-Americans. And... More importantly, non-Latinos view them all as Mexicans. And so I started this by talking about Chicano studies, and we named our, changed our name to Latino studies. And it would always kids would tell me, I'm not going to take Chicano studies. I'm, I'm Salvadorian. And I would say, well, but you know, as you're walking down the street, you think people say, uh, excuse me, are you Salvadorian, Mexican, Argentine? They see a Mexican, and that's the history. I don't care where you're from. If you look Latino, if you say you're Latino, if you speak in Spanish, they see a Mexican. And you, yes, we should try to educate them that we're diverse from different national origins. But it is the Mexican experience that defines the Latino experience, whether you're of Mexican origin or not. That is true. Yeah. Um, so uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your experience uh, coming here. How old were you when you came to LMU? I was uh, 25 years old when I started on the faculty. So uh, uh, tell me a little bit about your experience being a Latino and being here. What, how do you find uh, uh, the community embracing you? Uh, what, what can you say about like, your first contact with the LMU community? Well, my first contact with the LMU community was uh, as a senior in high school, uh, applying to Loyola Marymount University uh, and actually having it be my first choice being accepted, thinking that I was going to come here, and then at the last second changing to USC and purely for financial reasons because they offered me more money and it was just a lot 
uh, cheaper to go. Um, and my mother, my mother pushing me to come to LMU because of it being Catholic, etc. Jesuita, the status, you know, and all of that. To her, it was much, much more prestigious for me to go to a Catholic Jesuit university than to go to USC or UCLA. Uh, and that whole uh, uh, Catholic uh, mentality and the role that Jesuit universities play in, in, in Mexico. Uh, but, uh, you know, just to be very frank, it was the money, you know. And so I always had a, a great concept of Loyola Marymount University. I did my four years at USC, went to University of Michigan, four years there. They, I was at UCLA Library because uh, um, uh, I was working with a, a professor over there. Uh, and and uh, I had a friend who was teaching part-time here at Loyola Marymount, and he says, hey, he just happened to be walking in the library and saw me. He says, hey, LMU has a position that like fits you for a T. They're looking for someone in Chicano studies and political science. You know? Uh, and I'm like, I'm not ready. I'm not done with my dissertation. Nobody would hire me. He goes, I just go apply. And I remember talking to my dad and saying, I'm not going to apply. And him telling me, you know what? Apply. That way you get the first one out of, you know, under your belt. You know what people are asked. So that when you're really ready, you can go. And of course, I applied. Did not have my dissertation. Had just finished reading, basically the writing the first chapter, you know. And they hired me. We would never hire anybody, you know. The the imposter syndrome. Right now, I'm on a search committee. I'm on two search committees, and I take a look at the record, and I'm like, I, I would, they would never anybody with my resume vita that would show up. We would like look at it in, in five minutes and throw it out. You know, and and you always, I always feel a little bit of guilt in terms of the what we expect of uh, uh, the professors that we hire today. So, um, so, but it's a different time. I understand it was a different time and all that, and it was an incredibly welcoming place in in every respect as a colleague. Um, it was a much smaller, but you know, half the size in terms of students, half the size in terms of uh, faculty, half the size, and even in terms of property. It was a, a, a different place, incredibly welcoming, not as institutionalized. I mean, I still think LMU is welcoming, you know, but it, it was uh, uh, really um, welcoming. But in terms of the Latino community, I think when I started, I was the only Mexican-American male uh, faculty member and the only Mexican-American uh, uh, male faculty member for about the first 10 years of my uh, career here. And so uh, I had to sustain my intellectual curiosity about Chicano studies and about Latino politics and all that with colleagues from across L.A. County and being very fortunate to be in a place where there were so many universities and so many people that you could build community, not just the academic community, not just at LMU, but throughout L.A. You did this fascinating presentation a couple of, of days ago along with Professor Juan Ma, and uh, which is the the... the the situation of Latinos at LMU, could you uh, just talk a little bit about it and put it within the context of uh, the, the the changes that have happened, yeah. what needs to change still at LMU? Right. Um, the presentation was very simply to document in terms of numbers where Latinos are today, where they've been, and then in comparison to other groups at the university, but also in comparison to broader society and also in comparison to um, the number of, let's say, uh, uh, students that are available, et cetera. And uh, basically asking questions, is this equitable? Should we be focusing on recruiting more? 
Um, what, what, when presented with this data, what should the leadership of LMU do? Say that, hey, it's fine the way it is. Hey, we need to do something. Let's put resources on it. Or how, how to react. Um, I think the biggest change for me is that in having these discussions back in the uh, 80s, 90s, you know, 2000s, teens, there was always uh, a, a feeling from the administration that, yes, you're right, what can we do? Let's see, let's, let's try. Uh, maybe the strategies weren't effective. Definitely those results weren't there. Uh, what disturbs me the most is that uh, the reaction from the university is not, you're right, let's see what we can do, is we don't want to hear that. And that's a big change. And it, and it it's like takes me aback a little bit, thinking, why we're academics. So here's the data. And, you know, you you make you can't question the data. You may question how we contextualize what we should do, but that's the discussion we need to have. And it's like we don't even want to have a discussion, you know. And you know, it would be very easy in the '80s and '90s when I came of age at this institution to talk to the president of the provost, to actually have them in the dining room where you were eating to interact. It was a, sm a smaller place. And this is not only about Latino issues, about any issue. They were incredibly accessible physically, but also uh, em emotionally. They, they, they wanted to be accessible. And I just feel that they're much more isolated, much more corporate, much more um, focused on other issues without taking a look at the day-to-day -day, uh, lives of the students, the faculty, and the staff, um, and that there's a sense of, well, you, you got I have a vice provost or other people who take care of that kind of stuff. Well, like, what are you doing, you know? And uh, I, I think both the president and the provost at this university are lovely people. I, I actually don't mind socializing with them and talking to them if we're not talking about the university if we're talking about sports or dinner or something like that you, you, they're great dinner companions great conversationalists but if it turns to issues at the university they they don't want to have that discussion in your presentation that is just like a, a, a structural i will say it's it's a structural metaphor of what happens in relation to latinos in this city probably in the country and of course in the country in the in the in the pyramid of uh, of the LMU community at the bottom is all facilities and maintenance people that work at the, you know services and it's primarily Latino mm -hmm. and obviously associated uh, it, it, it's not only that fact uh, the, uh, the fact that is that way but also right now we can frame it within the the angle of the race for salary mm -hmm. which is like a uh, a very important issue right now at LMU. What, what is your opinion about it? It doesn't surprise me that when you take a look at the very bottom of the pyramid in terms of pay and um, physical work and stature are Latinos. And I think for many of those Latinos who are there, uh, they um, actually welcome the opportunity to, to work here. Uh, it's, it's a um, great environment. They've, they've told me this. But in, in addition, they need a living wage, right? And um, what bothers me is not the percent of Latinos that are in that position, but the lack of voice 
or the lack of a system to hear their voice, that in, in essence, the opposite has been to try to shut that voice down. And what also bothers me, and we didn't have these numbers, but, but the trend is there, that the number of facilities workers, the raw number of facility workers is actually declining. And what is happening is as they retire or leave, they're not being replaced. They're being replaced by contract workers. And you see the administration following the rule book of any um, capitalist who takes over a company and then tries to shred its uh, uh, its soul by um, uh, only focusing on the bottom line and not what it is to build community. The facilities workers for the vast majority of my time here, my 38 e- years here at Loyola Marymount University, have been part of our community. We treat them as colleagues. They're, they're, they are our colleagues. Um, they can feel that, that that's not the case. Um, and we, the administration used COVID to then, quote unquote, reorganize and furloughed many of these individuals. Um, and then when brought them back, brought them all back, not at their equal status as being, let's say, a carpenter two or electrician three or a supervisor. They brought them back all as apprentice and shredded the status from them, shredded seniority from them, you know, uh, and and so it's not just about the money. It's about the treatment of people and workers that is really disturbing to me. And the unwillingness of the administration and the administrative services side to feel obligated that they have to discuss this with a broader community, that it is none of our business, that it's not within our division, that we are in the academic academic division and we shouldn't have any uh, discussion with that other side, and that, that if we're going to talk to them, no, go talk to your provost first, you know, as though he would have anything to say with that anyway, and that trying to optimize, isolate us, and break us into different communities instead of one LMU community um, and maybe it just comes with the fact that we don't have a Jesuit at the top anymore. You know, um, I always thought that, okay, I knew it was inev- inevitable that we wouldn't have a religious, you know, but in my time here, you know, we've had the religious be presidents, the religious be the provost, the religious be a dean. They did a fantastic job, much better than I thought. And, you know, there was a little bit of, uh, well, there just aren't as many anymore. We're going to transition to the lay, but let's just make sure that those lay have the values of the Jesuits, that they come from that experience. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not getting that. I think they're failing in that. Again, wonderful people, but they have no history. I think I collectively have more history and more time at LMU than the top three or four people in this administration combined. And they don't want to know the history, you know. And 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 it, and it and and it bothers me that on a daily basis, the the, the, the if you think about Loyola Marymount University on a twenty four hour in a day, who gets here first? The facility people. Who leaves here last? The facility people. Who does everything in the back? The facility people. Who makes this campus look so beautiful? Recently, 
Um, U.S. News and World Report ranked us as the 77th best university. The university celebrated that by putting posters up saying, you know, 77th best. We were 20th best on, you know, entrepreneur studies, the 7th best in the film school, etc. You know what the highest number was? Number four. Number four in the country for what? The most beautiful campus. Who did that for us? The grounds people. And how do we treat them? I mean, to me... That's just disturbing. A day in the life of LMU begins and ends with the facilities management crew. A day in the life of LMU should be based on our values, our Jesuit values, and how we treat every single person. And our days at LMU are changing because we're getting away from our values. Thank you, Fernando. Uh, you're an expert in... Uh in the way of uh, understanding uh, trends and the population here in L.A. What, because we can talk about somebody having, uh, you know, minimum salary or uh, and living on, on, on that wage. What are the personal social implications uh, for people that actually just see it as a number mm-hmm. but don't realize all the implications that actually will cause on an individual of living in a, in a minimum wage? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about this is we have so much data. We know what it takes to live in Los Angeles. And we also know what it takes to live throughout the United States. And we have, um, you, you, you know, we have both from an academic perspective, but even from a government perspective, what you should spend on housing, what you should spend on transportation, and uh, the percent of money that um, Angelinos have to spend on housing, especially the, the less income you have, is way beyond what is expected. Therefore, you don't have resources left for anything else. Um, and so in Los Angeles, you're going to spend a higher percentage of your income on housing. You're going to spend a higher percentage of your income on uh, transportation. Therefore, you're left with less income to buy healthier foods, to buy appropriate um, uh, uh other things that add to your your quality of life, but just as important, the ability to uh, vacation and you know re- regroup, um, and so you just you just can't do that. And disproportionately, that falls on obviously poor people who are then disproportionately uh, Latino in this city. And so it, it is a. You, what is a living wage? I mean, I even take a look at a living wage, and I say that that in itself is not a living wage. You know, you, you, you can't manage that. And then the lack of public transportation and the lack of public housing uh, uh, contributes to a quality of life that for many are declining. Um, besides Silicon Valley in the Santa Clara, San Jose area, or some cities in China, L.A. County produces more billionaires and millionaires than anywhere else. Um, And that was always the history of L.A., that we were constantly producing wealthy people, middle-class people. We were rising people to become middle-class from all over America and all over the world. Now that's not the case. We are still creating and creating opportunity for people to amass tremendous amount of money, but we are also building more people than we ever have in our life. We create, we are creating more poverty in LA than we ever have in our history. 
Thank you. So a couple more questions and we'll let you go. If, if we can't end racism against historically minority populations, what radical changes must occur at LMU, an institution with a history of educating demographics of students denied access to higher education elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, I think LMU is drastically different than when I first got here in paying attention from a curriculum perspective. The incorporation of um, the study of marginalized people, both from racial and ethnic perspective, but also from class and all that. I see many more classes. I see many more instructors and faculty who take that perspective and I think are preparing our students for that uh, better than than before. I think we're doing that extremely well. I also think that our student body is more diversified than ever before. But it's not because of actions that the administration took. It's the demographics. It, it, it is is happening despite the programs that we're doing. And at the end of the day, it, it's about how are we graduating kids without student loans and all that. And I know that gets into how do we manage our money? What does it cost? Um, and how we compete? Do we have to continue to build things and do things and spend our money that way to be competitive? Part of it is, yes, because of this branding and marketing of higher education that's become more corporate, that we have to build a beautiful rec center, otherwise we're not competitive. We have to have Division One sports, otherwise we're not competitive. I mean, I want to challenge that. You know, I don't I don't think I've ever met a single student who says, I come to LMU because of Division One sports, unless they're an athlete themselves. Yet we spend millions of dollars on this. And wouldn't it be better resources? But they're afraid to take that. As a matter of fact, we're doubling down. We continue to spend more money in that area, even though it does not contribute academically. And I would even argue it does not contribute to the culture of LMU. There is this paradigm that sports add to the experience in college. I, I understand that. I agree with that. I went to USC and University of Michigan, two powerhouses in academia. And yes, it did contribute that I'm there. But that doesn't mean every school has to be that way. It doesn't mean LMU has to be that way. So while we're focusing on this paradigm that is a failed paradigm and willing to pump millions of dollars into it, there's this new emerging paradigm about diversity and preparing both white, uh, black, Latino, Asians to be men and women for others to contribute to a multicultural world. We don't, we're not investing the same amount of money into that paradigm. And it's that stark. And people think I'm like uh, uh, making a big deal of it. How, why don't you like basketball? I love basketball. I I, I go to games. I, I love sports. I've had season tickets for many of the sports teams. You know, I played sports. But take a step back. If you were starting you, would you do this? Would you build that infrastructure? So when they say we don't have money, we do have money. It's shifting of money. And so look at what they're doing right now. They're shifting money from paying for uh, facilities management by not number one by number one not paying them a living wage but number two by contracting out that's their paradigm that's how they cut instead of cutting the our, our basketball team or volleyball team or baseball team uh, I mean I've had some beautiful students from those but that's not who we are 
No one ever thinks about Loyola Marymount University as an as a sports power. Nobody comes here because of that. Nobody would even if our teams disappeared tomorrow. Nobody would notice. Yet we're going to invest millions of dollars in that instead of the infrastructure that makes us the fourth most beautiful campus. Incredible. What spaces on campus are reprieve uh, from your vocation? And remind you that we celebrate Latinx here. Oh, I think uh, just the beauty of the of the landscape. So every time I walk through uh, Loyola Marymount University and see how beautiful it is, I say a Latino did that. <laughs> you know, a Latino planted that tree. A Latino planted those flowers. A Latino painted that building. Mm. A Latino keeps this place uh, looking as beautiful as it it is. The, the, this. I mean, sometimes we have the idea of a campus, an academic place. I mean, even going back to medieval times, a place where you can reflect and you needed beauty and you needed serenity. And if you believe that, a Latino's providing that for the, this campus. Um, we are who we are because a Latino maintains it and a Latino started the whole idea. Uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola uh, grew up speaking Spanish. Um, and so he would be comfortable talking to the groundskeepers, much more comfortable than our current administration. What signs are emerging in the contemporary moment that gives you hope? And in relation to this hope, what is fun at LMU when you aren't fighting for fundamental equality and equitable access for Latinx people? Yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic about Los Angeles. I'm incredibly optimistic about the future of Loyola Marymount University because every time I go into the classroom and I see the eyes and the experience and I interact with students and the questions and they invigorate me. Um, the, the, that is the number one experience for me is being in the classroom with, uh, I mean, I love when I go in there and I have a lesson plan and I hardly get through it. You know, that, that, that just to me is a, is a great class experience. And so that's also uh, my fun. The, 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 the greatest joy, the greatest fun I have is in the classroom interacting with students. Um, and so both my vocation and avocation is the class which some people say then you don't get a vacation, but I say you don't need a vacation. And so that, 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 that to me is what uh, keeps me going, taking a look at young people. I know we always say, hey, these young people are different, and they are, and I already see them out there in the real world. They, they, they are. I mean, they have grown up in this multicultural environment, are incredibly, incredibly comfortable with each other and how to talk to each other, how to interact with each other, and, and that gives me a lot of hope. So uh, just uh, I want to thank you. And I just want to say that we're here at your office and behind you, there's all this series of shelves and is family portraits, basically. Yeah. Uh, Virgen de Guadalupe, yeah. uh, Cesar, uh, 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 Cesar, Chavez. Cesar Chavez. And, uh, and you know, it's like how, how really important those three things are, right? Yeah. Fighting for your community, your family, and and religion yeah. for Latinos, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think Cesar Chavez embodied all of those, right? You know, and I also, I, I, got, I got to meet Cesar Chavez as a freshman in college. 
um, I was part of a, a mecha at USC, and they had invited him to come. And because I was a freshman, they told me, hey, go to the parking entrance where he's coming in, and you got to meet them there and tell them where to park. And then, you you know, couldn't run back. So I got there. His car pulled in, a beat-up old car. Some guy was driving it. And uh, I, I obviously recognized him and said, hey, uh, I'm, I'm here to meet you. Go park over there or whatever. But Cesar Chavez got out. And I was like, oh, my God. So I'll walk with you back to the, where the meeting was. And I thought, oh, man, I have a million questions. Well, I didn't get to ask him a, a single question because all he did was ask me all these questions about my experience, what was happening with USC, etc. And then, of course, I didn't realize in his talk to the students, he incorporated because he told me, hey, so where's the favorite place that people go to, etc. He's like going here, etc. And it, it was like he had picked my mind and then incorporated it into to relate to the students, etc. And I thought, well, that, that was like a brilliant politician. But on the other hand, he was talking about social justice. It was uh, an incredible experience uh, uh, for me. We thank you for listening. The ideas discussed today don't exclude debate, but I hope our listeners can glean some wisdom from this interview. I produced this episode with Alex Thurner, who also served as editor. Please join us again for another Advocate installment.